Okay, I may surprise you, but if you've looked forward into your bulletin to see what is coming at you, then you'll understand when I say, be seated. This is, I have no doubt, the longest passage of Scripture that I think I've ever read for a sermon. But I'm not going to apologize for it because the book of Revelation begins explaining to us the blessings that come with this very strange and very beautiful book at the end of the Bible. And part of that blessing is that we are blessed who read this book together. And so, no apologies for the length of this passage of Scripture, but I am going to read it all, and you can follow along in your bulletin on pages 7 and 8 and 9, and then you'll see a sermon outline after that. This passage of Scripture brings to us another sequence of seven Now, you remember Revelation, as I've said before, and as you've probably read through and seen yourself, is not an accounting of chronological events through history. Rather, it is a series of visions that show history, especially the history from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, visions that show that history from different perspectives. And so the first set of seven that we had was the seven letters to the churches. And those seven letters show us that Christ lives among his churches. Even now and all through this age, he lives and walks by his spirit among the churches. We're not alone. In fact, we're even united to one another, church to church to church, in the church universal as Jesus walks among his lampstands, his churches. The second set of sevens, you may remember, was the seven seals as the Lamb took the scroll from God on the throne and began to break open the seven seals. And those seven seals show us from their perspective that during this history, the gospel is proclaimed, but in its evil and suffering, this broken world rejects it by and large and even persecutes those who believe it. Now we have another set of seven. The prayers of the saints, you may remember, have gone up before the Lord. How long, O Lord, they have prayed. When will you bring justice to bear on this earth? Those prayers have gone up before God, and the answer comes by means of trumpets, beginning in chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain Burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on, a, on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but all of these words of our God shall remain forever. O Lord our God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to make sense of this strange vision, to understand your good news, even in this odd and frightening word. We pray that you would give us your spirit. Wipe away the confusion and allow for this to be, as you call it, revealing to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's quite a passage for a new member joining Sunday, isn't it? They might have not joined if they had known that was coming. The symbolism of Scripture is very rich. You you know that. As you know Scripture and some of those Old Testament stories that you're familiar with, the symbolism is, is very rich. And the book of Revelation swirls it all together to put a flourish on the crescendo of Scripture and show you how simple the gospel story really is. God creates so that all things reflect His glory. Satan, a former archangel, jealously playing into God's sovereign hand, rebels and seeks to destroy. God intervenes, and in love He reclaims all that is rightfully His, and God wins. It's really that simple. That's the story of redemptive history as Scripture gives it to us and as the book of Revelation summarizes it for us. And it's a story of love. False love seeking to unseat true love. Destructive love disguising itself as virtuous love. And in the end, gospel love is the only love there is. Because False love and destructive love are really no loves at all, are they? They're imposters. And so when you come to a passage like this one, and really like most of the book of Revelation, because most of them are much like this, this one's just a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more devastating in its reading. When you come to a passage like this, it can almost seem impenetrable, almost impossible to understand, what am I to make of trumpets? and of plagues, and of giant locusts that are like horses with scorpion tails, and of mounted troops who are riding on horses that look like lions with serpent tails. What are we to make of all this stuff? I don't promise or even presume to understand all of this. I I, I don't. I simply can't. I'm not sure that anybody really can understand all of this. But it's not out of reach. That's something we have to realize. It's not out of reach, even a strange passage like this, because we just have to remember what Revelation is, what this final book of the Bible is for us. I 
explained these to you earlier on in the, the fall as we began this book. This book is a revelation. In other words, it's a revealing, it's a clarifying, it's a summarizing of all that came before it so that we can understand more clearly what all of Scripture is about. That's what this book is. It's also a vision. In other words, it's not a systematic theological treatise. Okay, so you can't put all the pieces in perfect order by means of the book of Revelation. That's not what it's here for. It's a vision given to you to stimulate your heart and your imagination and to draw you into the story. It's a vision. It's also a prophecy, of course, which we need to be clear and understand. That means not only does it speak to the future, but it also speaks to the past and very definitely the present. It's a prophecy, but it's also a pastoral letter. Its purpose is to lend strength and maybe even more to lend courage to Christians who are living in a day, in an age, and time, much like we are now, that's not particularly friendly to those who truly do want to follow Jesus in faith. So to begin to understand this passage of Scripture, I want to remind you of something that maybe you know and and you've seen in your own interactions with Scripture as you've read parts of it. And that is that the historical account of Old Testament Bible events is redemptive history in metaphor. And here's what I mean by that, to, to kind of summarize for you. You remember the Old Testament story of Israel. There was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, the one who struggles with God. And so his 12 sons and all their family collectively came to be known as Israel. And they found themselves captive in Egypt for hundreds of years, slaves in Egypt. And God sent a redeemer to them. You know who that was? Moses, right? To reclaim God's people from their bondage. You can begin to hear the metaphor at work. And he drew them out of Egypt by means of the plagues that God sent to warn Pharaoh to repent. But he did not And God led his people out of Israel anyway, out of their bondage. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they're on the verge of the promised land. But Jericho, the city of man, stands in their way. And how are they going to defeat it? You you heard the Old Testament story moments ago. Seven trumpets of warning God sends out as priests carry them with the ark following behind And they blow the trumpets. After seven days, the walls fall down. The imagery surely was not lost on John as he saw seven trumpets being blown from heaven, one after the other after the other. And so John wrote in Revelation what he saw. Remember that. He wrote what he saw. And so as we read it, you read these words often. It looked like. Or it was like, and John draws on the visual imagery that he knows from the Old Testament. We would have done the same thing, but in our day and age, we would have said things like the Death Star. It looked like the Death Star, or or it reminded me of Mario Kart. We would have thought of these sorts of visual imageries. John used the ones that he knew, and they were straight from the Old Testament. And this passage, I think, you can think of as a contrast between two loves. What we love that destroys us, 
and what God loves that defines us. Chapters 8 and 9 together, the longest part of this passage, cover the first six trumpets as they unfold. And maybe you noticed the detail that the pattern that they follow is very similar to the vision of the seals being broken from the scroll. They follow the same kind of pattern. The first four of them are a unit. They go together. They're very similar to each other. And then the fifth one reveals a major player in the drama. Do you remember the fifth seal revealed the saints under the altar of God finding refuge there? The fifth trumpet reveals a major player who's a crafty devil, Satan himself. And the sixth One reveals the day of wrath, both in the seals and the trumpets. The sixth reveals the day of God's wrath coming. And then the sixth one is followed by an interlude. We skipped chapter 10 and half of chapter 11, maybe you noticed. We'll come back to that next week. But both of them have an interlude to answer a question that's pressing in the moment. And then the seventh one celebrates the kingdom of God. They follow the same kind of pattern. The broken seals are revealing of evil and suffering and somewhat explanatory of that, the blown trumpets are warning to those who would love the things that cause evil and suffering to run. The trumpets are a warning. And by by God's grace, many do run and flee from them, but many don't because in this fallen world, we love what destroys us. As much as post-Halloween sugar highs... And the crashes that follow after them remind you every year that high fructose corn syrup is just a deceptive attraction. There are much more dangerous ones. And that's what you meet in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. You see the fifth trumpet is blown. And John says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now you know that trouble's on the way. You know, something's about to come that no one really wants to see, but there's some sort of twisted part of us that's really curious to see it. Because we love what destroys us in particular. Even if it's going to be a risk, we want to see what it is. It's almost like that horror movie that you cover your eyes, but you're kind of peeking between because you want to see what's going to destroy you, but you don't. It's a conflicted circumstance, isn't it? Who is this? This one falling from heaven. In verse 11, I think you get a little bit more of a hint of it. His representatives have come forth and they have as their king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he's called Apollyon. If you're looking in your Bible, you might see a text note at the bottom that tells you what those words mean. Both of them mean destroyer, destruction. This is the name of their king and I think this is Satan. He's the imposter, the one who comes posing as something that he's not. Because you have to understand something about Satan, about this enemy, and that is that he can't create anything. He can't create anything. All he can do is plagiarize. And he does it with a wicked twist. That's what Revelation shows us about this enemy as he comes into the world. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about him, saying simply that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And the Proverbs in the Old Testament understood him quite well. The writer of the Proverbs described him 
as, and his work as the, the forbidden woman, as opposed to Lady Wisdom, there was the forbidden woman in the book of Proverbs, and the Proverbs calls her the forbidden woman, a cheat, an adulteress with smooth words, because she will draw you in. Satan's representatives here are these locusts. Now, you just have to read the passage to realize these are not angels of light. They're nasty, demonic creatures. But, but what are they like? They're like horses prepared for battle. That's kind of odd. They're locusts, and we in Texas, we know our locusts, right? But they're like horses prepared for battle. There's something wrong with that. But there's something attractive about them, though. Look, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Now, crowns of gold on the head of someone would indicate some sense of authority and majesty, right? But it's not crowns of gold. It's something that looked like crowns of gold. It's deceptive, even if it's attractive. But there's more. They have human faces, or they're like human faces. There's something familiar about these characters that want to draw us close to them. And even more, their hair is like a woman's hair. Why a woman's hair and not a man's hair? I think we all know that, right? Because a woman's hair we think of as a part of her beauty. However she styles it, it's a, re- it's a reflection of her beauty. And that would not be lost on John here. Her, her, their hair is like a woman's hair. There's an air of beauty and of attractiveness of this representative. But then she smiles. And her teeth are like a lion's teeth. Deceptive attraction. Draw you in close enough to make contact, and then it shows you exactly what it is. This is a destroyer. But, you know, we don't need to worry about this, right? Because Revelation is not literal after all. And there aren't actually going to be giant horse-like locusts with scorpion tails and lion's teeth flying out of the abyss that we're going to have to fight. Surely not. It's not literal, right? And those who do think of Revelation as being literal are those who throughout the past decades have been wont to call these the helicopters of World War III. You've maybe heard that before, that these locusts coming out of the abyss, they're, surely they're Russian helicopters coming against the United States. You know, we, we tend to want to think very American-centric about that, but John knew nothing about America, and he wasn't thinking surely about that. Could it be those? Who knows? But we won't really see these locusts literally, will we? Well, you just have to ask the right person. Ask the young man who has, for the first time in his life, stumbled across a digital door in which he glimpsed the darkness of online sexual immorality and could even reflect on it saying, I I was drawn to it, it appealed to me, but I knew that I should flee. Ask him if he's seen these locusts. Ask the young woman who, drawn by the marketing schemes of a culture of perfection in this world, will do anything to discipline and shape her body and appearance in just such a way that someone somewhere someday might think that she's attractive. Just ask her if she's seen these locusts. Just ask the middle-aged man who struggles with his current circumstances, who's maybe disappointed with his life, who's in that middle-age crisis, 
and discontent with all that has amounted in his life. He's just scraping by, not quite making it professionally, not living up to the standards of the Joneses in the neighborhood. And he stops by the pawn shop and sees their collection of guns and wonders if maybe there's an easier way out. Ask him if he's seen these locusts. These characters are from the pit of hell, and they are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and they're grinning from ear to ear, tempting us to love what destroys. What destroys us, in fact. But notice there's a limit to this darkness here. In verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, Revelation is this sequence of visions, which are not chronological, but they do make progress. And you see a little bit of the progress here. Those were sealed by God in the previous vision who belonged to him. And now here they are again. But only those who are not sealed are those subject to the torment of these characters. And here's the thing about it. Satan the imposter is seeking to destroy what is God's, but who does he ultimately destroy? His own. He destroys his own. Isaiah knew it. Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before John, knew it. In Isaiah 14, he wrote this little treatise against Babylon, against the king of Babylon in particular. And in Isaiah said this, To the king of Babylon, he said, You in your heart have said, I will ascend to heaven and I will set my throne on high. That's what Satan aspires to. But Isaiah said, However, you are brought down to the pit. You are brought down to Sheol by God and you have destroyed your own land and slain your own people. Isaiah even knew, hundreds of years before John, that Satan was a destroyer and ultimately he would only destroy his own. These trumpets are a warning to anyone who would be drawn to this enemy because apart from the gospel, our hearts are stubborn and love what destroys us, even in the face of catastrophes. Trumpets 1 through 4 are a grouping. They're similar, aren't they? And they're reflective of those great Old Testament plagues in Exodus uh, 10, 8, 9, 10 in Egypt. The, the catastrophes that God sent through Moses intended to change Pharaoh's heart, to persuade him to let the people go. The first trumpet brings hail and fire and blood and destroys a third of the earth and the trees and the, the grass. And the second trumpet is a great mountain, a world power thrown into the sea. And it turns the sea to blood, a third of it anyway, and a third of the creatures destroyed. The third trumpet is a great star that's thrown down and it turns the fresh water bitter. And the fourth trumpet is the darkening of a third of the sky. You, you notice a third, a third, a third. That's important. And these are just the beginning of the woes that are coming. The eagle warns them of the woes that are yet to come, which will be even worse. But notice it's only a third of things. The implication is that it's not complete. It's not complete judgment on all things. Therefore, repent. Turn away from these things that would destroy you and trust God. But what did Pharaoh 
say. When Moses came and brought these plagues, saying, Let my people go, Pharaoh again and again said, No, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. After the third plague came on Pharaoh's land, even his own magicians went to him and said, Pharaoh, listen, this looks a little like the finger of God to us. And still Pharaoh said, No, I will not let them go. He would not listen. And so you see in verse 20 and 21, the same kind of thing. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murderers, sorceries, sexual immorality, or thefts, because stubborn hearts love what destroys them, even in the face of catastrophe. It's just the nature of sin. And we have to understand what what the nature of sin is at work in our own hearts. Sometimes it's hard for us to see because we're not in tune enough to understand our own hearts. But what is the nature of sin? I mean, why do we do the things that we do? Do we do it because we're sinners? Well, yes, but there's a a more, more nuanced sort of answer to that. Deeper than that, we do the things we do because of our affections. It's because of what we love. Even a catastrophe can't overcome twisted affection. You know, we commit murder. We hate one another in anger because in that moment we love the order of our own lives that someone else is threatening more than we love Jesus who has saved us. We commit sexual immorality. Because in that moment, we love what's not ours more than we love the one who's claimed us to be his. We commit thefts because in that moment, we love possessions more than we love Jesus. And on the list goes. It's all a matter of affection and love. And in our stubborn, fallen hearts, we want to love what destroys us. But God loves what defines us. Revelation, you have to realize, is not about Satan. It's not about hell. It's not about the abyss. It's not even about judgment, although those things are there. The book of Revelation is about the reign of God throughout all of history. It's about His destruction of the destroyer. It's about His reclaiming and restoring His creation and His sons and His daughters It's about His preservation of the bride of Christ against all worldly odds. Revelation is ultimately about Jesus. That's what it's about. And despite the fact that we love what destroys us, He loves what defines us. And for His sons and His daughters, His love prevails. So what defines us? The the seventh trumpet shows some of that. It's the trumpet of celebration and culmination and conclusion at the end of this scene, isn't it? And it shows what God loves. It shows what defines who we are as people, His prevailing kingdom and His abundant grace. The seventh seal, you may remember at the beginning of chapter 8, brings silence in heaven as God is listening for the prayers of the saints, right? But the seventh trumpet doesn't bring silence. 
It brings noise. But it's good noise. In heaven, as loud voices proclaim, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And the elders explain it a bit there. They explain, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. You've rewarded Your servants, both small and great, and You've destroyed the destroyers of the earth. There is, at this point now, no more Apollyon destroyer. He is no more. There are no more impostors reigning in the world at this point, and the elders are explaining that to us. But how does God destroy the destroyer? How does His kingdom prevail? It does so by His Word. I mean, theologically, we would say that, wouldn't we? By God's Word going forth, even now, in the world, is how God destroys the destroyer. The interlude of chapter 10 explains some of that. And again, we'll come back to that next week. The, the seals question in the earlier chapters was, who can stand in the day of God's wrath? And the interlude there answered that question. The invisible church can stand. Here, the question is not as explicit, but it's clear. What should we, the church, now do in the midst of this world of catastrophe and warning. And the interlude answers that question with a scroll and with two witnesses who are called to proclaim God's word. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives an interesting foreshadowing to this very vision. In Luke 10, he has sent out his 72 disciples, not not the 12, but the expanded version. There are 72 now, and he's sent them out two by two to go and preach the gospel, and to heal the sick. And they return sometime later with all these good reports, and they're really jazzed up and excited because some good things happened as twos went out by two to go and proclaim the word of God. And they come back saying to him, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Does that sound familiar? Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Sound familiar? And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, my word is conquering the destroyer even through you. And it's going to happen. You have authority by my word over the power of serpents and scorpions and all of the enemy. But don't rejoice because of that. Rejoice because you've been sealed in me. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven and your security is eternal because of my grace to you. He loves what defines us, and His kingdom defines us. It may not be yet full, but it is already here. And the entrance to that kingdom requires something enormous. And that's the other thing that defines us, His abundant mercy. During the hundreds of years before the first coming of Jesus, during the disappointment of Israel's exile from their country, 
Babylon came and took them away during those years of exile and then return and their rebuilding of the temple. Something had been lost. Do you know what it was? Way back in Exodus, in God's instructions to Moses in the wilderness, build a tabernacle and build it just like this where the people can gather and that's where I will be and you'll worship me in this way and and I'll redeem you in this way. And God said, Make a chest of acacia wood and cover it with gold. The Ark of the Covenant, we call it. And God's instructions included uh, instructions for a cover. The, The top of the box was to be an atonement cover of gold. And it was what came to be known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled and God would meet His people in mercy and receive them despite their filth, despite their sins, despite their stubborn rejection of Him, yet still by His grace He would receive His people by mercy at the mercy seat. And from the time of Moses, all the way through three centuries of judges and centuries of of Saul and David and Solomon and all the kings, this ark was the presence of God among His people, the mercy seat was the definition of His people. And then it was gone. The exile to Babylon, who knows what happened to the ark in all of that time, it was gone, but God's plans were not on hold because the seventh trumpet sounds, and what do you see? Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. Now, I have no idea what went on in John's mind and his heart when he saw the ark of God in the temple of God at this point. John had never seen the ark. The ark was way before his time. But he knew the ark. He knew it well. He knew the mercy seat on which God met his people. And now there it is. You know, when when Joshua circled the city of Jericho seven times and signaled to his priests to blow their trumpets, guess what was behind them? The ark. The ark was a crucial ingredient to that assault on the city of man. They blew the trumpets, but the trumpet blast didn't fell those walls. The presence of God himself did it. And nor will trumpet blasts or even catastrophes fell hard hearts. They're inclined to reject God, but the presence of God Himself will. The mercy of God Himself will do it. Because what defines you is not your rebellious heart. It's not your love of control or pleasure or security or whatever that thing is that is the strange attraction that draws you in. That's not what defines you. What defines you is the glory of of the transcendent God who created you. What makes a heart that is so rebellious ultimately repent? Is it fear? It's not fear, because we saw that in the catastrophe. Even fear of catastrophe is not going to make a heart repent. It won't lead you to the gospel. What is it that makes a rebellious heart repent? It's love. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son with the mercy that only God could bring. The book of Revelation is is 
ultimately realistic, isn't it? It's not just visionary and creative. It's realistic about the the realities of what exists in this world. And it tells us in no uncertain terms that only the Christian gospel can explain the deceptive attractions that destroy people in this world. Only the Christian gospel can explain the presence of catastrophe in this world and its purpose to draw us away from what destroys and to the one who made us. Only the Christian gospel can offer the prevailing kingdom of God and his abundant mercy that gives us life in Jesus. And so may we see it ever more clearly even today. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and eyes to see and hearts to understand your word to us. We pray, Lord, that even as you continue to work by your word in our hearts in the days to come, that you would provoke and draw us to yourself and increase our faith to believe your good news to us in Jesus. As we see in these strange visions, that we might recognize that you, Lord, are drawing your people to yourself. Might you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.